Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, you can tell I'm in a different location. I'm in an undisclosed location this morning. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, Beth DeCoon uh, procured something we've needed for an awful long time. We have office space. And uh, there's still some work being done, but it's an amazing place. It's going to be a real hub of activity over the days to come. And uh, maybe next week we'll be able to show you around virtually. But this is the training room, and I'm here with about a dozen or so friends and family. And um, so, but next week we'll be just on the other side of this wall, which is where we'll be doing live streams from here on. But anyways, God's really blessed us with this space, and uh, I'm very excited about it. And I hope you all will enjoy it too over coming days as we do discipleship classes and counseling and book discussions and children's programs, all kinds of things here. So we could have it 24-7, and uh, God has really blessed us with that. One last thing, we will be doing a live stream next week, but the week after that, on December 26th, uh, there will not be a live stream. Uh, a lot of people will be traveling, including Tim and myself, and uh, a lot of people will be out of town. So we're going to take a break for a week, but we'll be back uh, the first Shabbat in January then. Um, so let's have a word of prayer, and we're going to get right into the teaching. Our Father and King, thank you so much for this season of the year, the, or the festival of lights, for the time of Hanukkah. Thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul, the words that you spoke through him, through his pen. And Lord, I pray you would resurrect them off the page today as we look into this precious information, this wisdom that comes from you. Lord, bless our time together. And I ask that in each home, each individual maybe driving a car, listening to this later, that, Lord, you'd bless them and you'd speak through this teaching and you'd protect us from distraction, from error. And, um, and Lord, may there not be any interruptions that would, anything would interrupt our thoughts, that we would hear from you, Father, and you'd accomplish your purpose in our lives. We praise you and thank you for your word and for the freedom of studying it. And we commit this time to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Since this is the time of Hanukkah, and I think this really fits in well with what we're going to be looking at in uh, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, um, I thought I'd put a menorah on the screen, beautiful menorah. And this menorah is a picture of the church at Corinth. Paul praised the church at Corinth for their, that they were rich in word, they were rich in knowledge, in gifts, and God's calling in their lives. They had a lot going for them. And maybe this is a picture of your life. you got a lot going for you. You have a beautiful life, beautiful family, beautiful home. Maybe it's a picture of your faith community. you got lots of programs. you got padded pews. you got air conditioning. You have a beautiful place. I remember um, one time I used to tune pianos. There was a lady I tuned her piano for her. And uh, she says, why don't you come tune the piano at our church? Turns out she was the organist at their church and um, went in. It is very ornate, and they had a pipe organ. And they're in the middle of raising money, well over a million dollars, to buy a newer and bigger pipe organ for their church. She was the organist, by the way, so she was really pushing this. And I just kept thinking, I've thought about this ever since, that they could take that million, that million and a half dollars, whatever it was, and the mouths that could feed, the Bibles that could provide, the missionaries that could support. And yet, she wanted their menorah to be just the best, the most impressive of all. So anyways, here's a beautiful menorah. Here's your life. Now let's take a look at it in the dark. There it is. You know, a lot of people are like beautiful menorahs. They're beautiful in the daytime, but they're useless in the dark. I think of those uh, ten virgins in the parable Yeshua taught. Five wise, five foolish. And I wonder what they look like. Maybe those five foolish virgins were all supermodels. Maybe they were gorgeous. They were beautiful. But when the sun went down, the dark time came. They are unprepared. 
Because you see, the purpose of a menorah is not about the menorah. And when it gets dark, it makes no difference how beautiful that menorah was. All that matters is, is there fire? Now tell me what the menorah looks like. You don't notice the menorah anymore, do you? It's totally irrelevant. Because all that matters is the fire. And my prayer for my life, for my family, for Beth de Kuhn, is that, sure, it's wonderful to be a beautiful menorah, but if there's no fire, there's no light. And we have to have God's fire in our lives, because otherwise we're not fulfilling the purpose for being a menorah. Because the menorah is not about the menorah, it's about the light. So, ask yourself the question, what kind of light are you being? What kind of light is your family being? What kind of light is Beth the Coon being? Because that is all that matters in dark days. So, talking about Corinth, let's do a little review. Because when we get to chapter 5, the tone of the book begins to change. In chapters 1 to 4, here's a basic breakdown of an outline of what's been going on. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, Paul praises the Corinthians because they were rich in word, knowledge, gifts, and their calling. But they were divided and quarrelsome. Verses 10 to 17. You get to verse 18, on to chapter 3, verse 4. It says, I put down this, prove that they were fleshly and soulish. Only by becoming spiritual could they grasp truth. Then in 3, verse 5, Paul reminds them that judgment day is coming. And when judgment day comes to each of us, it's not going to be a question of how beautiful our menorah was, but how much light went out from us. So he says, take care that you do not judge. You have a judge. It's his job. Don't you be judging one another. Then chapter 3, verse 18, it says, if you basically, to summarize, if you think you're wise, think again. Then in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, he keeps telling them how they're puffed up. He He basically tells them, deflate. You're too puffed up. Humble yourselves. Don't be so snobbish. I am your spiritual father. I have responsibility to speak into your life. So now in chapter 5, Paul gets down to where the rubber meets the road. He gets down to very specific things of issues that are in the Corinthian community. So let's pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now the word for sexual immorality is one word in Greek. And we'll get to that in just a moment. There's actually sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the Gentiles. What's interesting, these are Gentiles he's writing to. But Paul in other places speaks to Gentile believers, and even Yeshua does this. He speaks to believers who are Gentiles and refers to them not to act like the Gentiles. Because even though you may be physically a Gentile, if you've given your life to Yeshua, you've been adopted into the family of God. You've been grafted into Israel, and you're supposed to put away your pagan Gentile ways. And here is the particular sexual immorality that was taking place. For there's not traded even among you pagans, for a man has his father's wife. It's not his mother, but it's probably his stepmom. There's a man who's sleeping with his stepmother, his father's wife. And you are puffed up. There's that word again. You are puffed up. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, why would they be arrogant and puffed up about this? I've met believers who become very proud of how tolerant of sin they are. There's sin in their midst, but that, well, I'm, I'm bigger than that, and I'm tolerant of that. I'm forgiving and I'm just going to be the, the, the adult in the room and just kind of, you know, not point it out, not talk about it. And Paul says, this is a dangerous way to behave. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. That's important to point out. 
Spirituality does not recognize geography. Spirit is not limited by geography at all. This is why you can have a dear friend who lives on the other side of the world. This is why, as a mom, you may have a son who's several states away, and that son gets in trouble or gets into danger, and somehow you know in your heart something's going on, and you pick up the phone, hey, how are you? That's happened in our family a number of times, because spiritual connection is not limited by the physical whatsoever. Now look what Paul says, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Master, Yeshua, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Master, Yeshua, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So he's saying, I've already judged this guy. Now, this seems inconsistent because just in the previous chapter, he's telling us not to judge. And yet here, he's passing judgment on someone he hasn't even met. This seems really inconsistent, but think about it for a moment. The kind of judging that Paul is talking about back in chapter 4 is the kind of judgment and criticism we apply to ourselves and to others when it comes to daily things that don't matter all that much. Um, an analogy might be you're learning to drive. You turn 16, you just got your, your temps, and you're behind the wheel of the car. And what are you doing? You're always asking, did I put my turn signal on too early? Did I put it on too late? Am I going too fast? Am I going too slow? Am I weaving? Am I getting too close to that car? Am I stopping too soon? Am I stopping too late? Am I making the curve too wide or too sharp? And these are all the kinds of the normal self-judgment and criticism that we do. But you're at least trying to do your best and trying to get to the right place, alive, and without killing anybody else. And Paul says, take it easy. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. Don't be so judgmental and critical. Just keep driving. But if you're going 100 miles per hour the wrong way on a one-way street, I can judge you right now. That's dead wrong. Stop, pull over, get turned around. You know, it's like you're going to kill somebody. And that's what he's talking about here. When somebody is committing this level of sexual immorality or any level of sexual immorality, I don't have to be there to judge that. It's wrong. And I've got the Torah here to show that this is dead, dead wrong. And so there's judgment in these two different ways. And uh, Paul, you see, is making this distinction. But look what he says. It's, it's pretty strong language. It says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction or extermination of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He said similar things in other places. Um, and he bases this on, um, on Leviticus. Well, you know, let's just move on to this. In 1 Timothy 1, 19-20, he talks about, and I should have put some dots here because this is continuing from a previous sentence. Keeping faith in a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are, and he names names, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. We were talking during our prayer time that even Satan has a purpose. If he didn't, God wouldn't have created him. You see, the wages of sin is death. When you hear that verse, when you read that verse, don't be thinking God is watching. He says, oh, there's sin. I have to kill him. That is not how it works. When God says the wages of sin is death there in, in Romans, what he is saying is sin is deadly. If you sin, you're going to suffer death because sin will kill you. And I think I've shared before, if you're coming to a sharp curve and you see the, the, the speed limit sign, it says curve ahead 25 miles per hour. That's the law, 25 miles per hour. But you think, ah, that's too slow. I'm going to take it at 80. You go around the curve, you're going to die because the wages of violating that traffic law is death. 
somebody didn't have to come and have a trial then execute you. Your sin killed you. The wages of sin is death. It's deadly. And so what Paul is saying is this. If this person is so unrepentant, so determined to pursue this sinful course in his life, put him outside the community and let him indulge his sin and experience the death that comes with it. And death comes in all forms. God told Adam and Eve, the day we eat of this, dying you shall die. Yamot yamut, dying you shall die. And they began to die. They lived for another 900 years and eventually did die physically, but the death began right away. And so Paul is basically saying, if you're going to commit sin that is this deadly, do your dying someplace else. Go outside the community to do it. Because your action and your death is dangerous to this community. If one of your children is determined to play with explosives at the kitchen table, and they refuse to stop playing with explosives, you say, all right, take them outside, way in the back field, so that way when you blow yourself up, we'll be okay. I can't think of an exact, that's probably not a really good analogy, but... but, uh, It's that same sort of thing. If you're determined to continue in the sin, do it someplace else because you're going to damage the people you're with. Also in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 to 15, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This apparently was a lesser sin than the one being committed here in 1 Corinthians. But even then, you are not to associate with him, not to eat with him. In the ancient world, and even today, to eat with someone means you're sharing the same life source and you're in fellowship with one another. Sharing a meal was a big thing back then, and still is today to a great degree. It means we are in fellowship. And he's saying, don't eat with someone. Don't be in fellowship with someone who's a rebel against God's ways. Don't do it because you're not helping him. And there have been cases in communities I've been a part of that when a person was committed to a particular rebellious and sinful way of life, they had to be removed. And sometimes after the enemy had really had his way in their life, they repented and they came back and were restored. But I've never seen a soul restored when they've committed a level of sin that should not be tolerated and people kept treating them like a brother. I've never seen that soul helped. I've only seen healthy souls damaged by that kind of behavior. And the scriptures are very clear about this. Let's go back to the Torah uh, portion that Paul is using for his foundation. It's in Leviticus 8, which first of all tells us that this kind of sin is intolerable. In Leviticus 18, that should be an 18 there, not an 8, 18, and verse, in fact, I left the, how did I do that? I left the chapter out altogether, so it should be chapter 20, chapter 18, verse 8, there we go, that's better, and verses 24 to 29. It says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. In other words, don't do that. And after all these different sexual, sexually immoral sins, God has Moses write this. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, You are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the sojourner who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out, should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. We live in a culture where there are congregations 
who at one time were healthy, but now not only do they tolerate the abominations that are listed in Leviticus 18, but they boast in them. They boast in them and advertise that they tolerate these things and then condemn those who do not tolerate and endorse these things. Our culture has fallen so far and so quickly that I've watched this happen in about half a lifetime. I say in the last 25 years, 30 years, I've watched our, our culture around the world drop to such a level and it's in free fall. I don't think we've seen anything yet to the degree it's going to fall further. And um, the days are dark, but when does a menorah look most beautiful? In the dark. During our, our prayer time, Tim was sharing about his four-year-old son, Jeffrey. They lit, we all lit the second uh, candle of Hanukkah last night, and Tim's home. He was sharing how he asked uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, he's talking about how beautiful the light was. He's, and, and Tim this is a four-year-old now. This is a deep thinker. I think I, think I found my replacement, Tim. And uh, he asked Jeffrey, Jeffrey, why is the, the light so beautiful? And Jeffrey thought for a moment. And he said, because of the dark. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the dark is nothing we should fear if we have fire. If we have God's light. There's nothing to fear. Because there's nothing powerful about darkness. Nothing at all. But there's a lot of power in light. The dark has no power. It's dark because it lacks God's presence, God's truth, God's life, and God's power. We have those things. All we have to do is be light. But to be light, you have to invest in it. Because when you see light on menorah, it's burning the oil that's there or the wax of the candle that's there. It's, being, it's consuming what's given to it. And God has given us an endless supply to keep our lights alive. And we must yield to it. I told a story. I think it was last Hanukkah when we were meeting together and uh, lighting the menorah at Beth Tikkun. And I shared a story. And I'm not going to share the whole story here, but the moral of the story was this. If you have a candle... And you want to preserve the essence of that candle for eternity. What's the only and one and only thing you can do to preserve that candle's essence for eternity, to make it last for eternity? The only thing you can do is light it. Because the wax isn't going to last forever. But the light, we know from physics, light goes on forever and ever and ever. When you shine a flashlight into the sky... That beam of light goes on for eternity. And if you want the physicality of who you are, of your gifts, of the time you have, of your health and your resources, you want to invest that in eternity, set it afire. Give it over to God's fire. And let him consume you. And you'll fulfill your purpose. Now, don't go up and put gasoline on yourself and, you know, light yourself in the parking lot. You're supposed to be a living sacrifice, not a dead one. So be a living sacrifice. And uh, John, he said that I immerse you in water, but the one who comes after me will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Fire is God's essence. And only when you give yourself to him as a living sacrifice do you really begin to experience his essence in your life. Whoever holds on to his life, the master says, will lose it. Whoever lets go of his life for my sake, he'll find it. He'll find what he's created for. You got it? What if Yeshua had come as a great teacher, but he hadn't died on the cross and risen from the dead? What if he'd said, yeah, I'll serve these people for my whole life, but that cross thing, mm-mm, that ain't for me. No dying for this boy. What if he'd said that? Then we would be talking about Yeshua today is like we might talk about Buddha or, or uh, Ann Landers or somebody else. But by giving his life, he changed the world. The world will never be the same after what he did. All right, a few Greek words here. That word for sexual immorality is the word porneia. It's one word in Greek, 
And of course, we get our word pornography from this. And the second word there, porne, is the word for a harlot. It's used in Revelation to talk about the great harlot you find there. And we'll see this word again over in verse, uh, in verse 11. Ethnos, the second word ethnos, remember that second letter is a TH sound, ethnos. This is the word for Gentile. And of course, this is where we get the word ethnicity. And this third word, since we haven't come to this yet, but I thought I'd go ahead and just finish up our little Greek lesson all in one fell swoop. The third word is the word cosmos, cosmos. And it means world. But it really means world system. There's a different word in Greek for earth, like the, the land, and that's the word gay, which means earth. You know, people talk about the goddess Gaia, the earth goddess. That comes from this Greek word gay, which means earth. And it's important as you go through the scriptures to understand where the word cosmos is used, cosmos, or the word gay. Because cosmos is not just the world, but the system of how the world operates, the culture of the world, the kind of um, cultural temperature and feel of the world. And this is what gets destroyed. And when it talks about how the world was destroyed at the time of Noah, it's the word cosmos that's used. We have to realize that God did not destroy the world with a flood. He destroyed the living things on it with a flood. The world was washed clean. It was preserved. But the days to come, it's not going to be a flood of water. It's going to be fire. And that will destroy the world, but the people are preserved. It's just the opposite. So when you think of Noah's flood, that was the world being preserved, but the people destroyed. But the fire that's coming, it's the world that's destroyed, but the people are preserved. So it's quite the opposite thing. I don't know how we got off on that, but anyways, that's n I won't charge you extra for that. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. In other words, take this guy who's committing this immorality that you're so proud of, that you're tolerating forgiving him, take him and chuck him out. Because if you don't, his sin will infest your entire community. In some way or other, it will damage the entire community. The influence of that sin will damage the souls of your entire community. You must remove him. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Messiah, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Well, look at that. That's Paul. I thought he did away with the Torah. He's telling the people to celebrate the Passover feast. Let us celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of, sin, of sincerity and truth. Now, there's a really important thing Paul's bringing out. Think back to the Passover, that first Passover in Egypt. What did the people have to do? And what did they do ever, ever since that was initiated? They got rid of the leaven in their homes. And every year after that, they would get rid of the leaven in their homes before they brought the Passover lamb in. The lamb is to be eaten. The Passover lamb is to be eaten only in a home where the leaven has been destroyed. There are two aspects to God's dealing with sin in our lives. His death on the cross is what washed away our sins. All the things we've done, all the things we've done, washed away, dealt with, our sins, our bad deeds, all taken care of. But we still have this thing called sin, where I continue to produce sins. And Paul talks about this in Romans, chapter 7 and 8 of Romans, deal with this. What Yeshua did forgave me for my sins, but I saw this problem called sin. His death and resurrection dealt with my sins. 
You know how you deal with sin? Paul makes it so clear. Romans 7 and 8 and on up through 12. It's your death. It's your death. By becoming a living sacrifice. By taking everything you are and giving it over wholeheartedly to God, you begin to deal the death blow to sin in your life. How many times, maybe you've been one of these, you'd, there'd be an altar call, you'd go up to the front to, re, to, uh, to uh, rededicate your life because you've been in sin and you just want to get it cleansed and God cleanses you. He does that. But then a day, a week, a month later, you're falling again. Ah, when am I ever going to get free of this thing? It's your death. It's you doing business and saying, God, I give you me. We too often want to give God our sin. But what do you put on the altar? Holy things or unholy things? You don't put your garbage on the altar. You don't put your sin on the altar. You don't put your habits and your trash on the altar. You put holy things on the altar. You put yourself there. We've been called to be a holy people. And God calls you to come and die. To quit doing things your way. And to do business with him. And I mean it's very serious. It's when you seriously get down and you talk to him. And you say, God, here's my body. Here's my future. Here's my future spouse. My health. My finances. Whatever it is. Everything I can think of that I want to hold on and control. All the things I fear losing. I take all those things I'm afraid I'll lose. I'm going to give them to you. See, when you do that, you don't lose any of them. If you hold on to them, you'll lose them. But when you give them to God, He takes good care of what you're giving. And then, your treasure is where? It's in heaven. And that's where your heart's going to be. You give God your health and your future spouse, your finances, your career, your whatever. You give it all to him. Your treasure is all now in safekeeping. But you really have to seriously give it to him, to his lordship. He can do with it whatever he wants. I remember my greatest fear when I did this. I was about 19 years old. I was afraid he'd give me an ugly wife. Make me marry some ugly woman. And... Uh, but you know what? He gave me the, the best one in the world, and I'm going to hear about this. But Robin's an introvert, doesn't like to be talked about. But I'm just going to do it anyway. He gave me the most wonderful wife. He gave me the most wonderful family, kids, job. And you know what? There's not one iota of regret that I did business with him and gave him everything. Not a speck. Not a speck. I don't know of anybody who's fully given their lives to the Lord and did business with him that regretted it later. I only know of people who regret not having done that. So take the things you treasure and give ownership of those to God. And uh, give him your life. Get on the altar. You've been made holy by a sacrifice. Now give yourself to him. Okay? In Matthew 13, 33, Yeshua tells the parable of the woman who took a measure, three measures, or took a measure of 11 and put it in three sayas of flour. Now, these, uh, these parables in Matthew 13, there are seven of them. They're called the seven kingdom parables. We'll say the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. And... Um, he said, spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three seahs of flour. Seah is a Hebrew measure of flour until it was all leavened. Now, leaven in the Bible is always, without exception, a picture of sin. And I've heard some Messianic teachers say, well, this proves that leaven is not a picture of sin because Yeshua is saying the kingdom of heaven is like a love which a woman took and hid in three seas of flour. But we must understand that these parables are not about heaven. It's not about 
a perfect community of believers. This is simply talking historically. This is how God's expression of his community has behaved on earth. And sometimes we behave badly. You can take these seven parables and lay them out. It really gives you a history over the last 2,000 years of how the redeemed community has behaved. They line up perfectly with the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3. Exactly. And uh, it really lays out a history of what's sometimes called the church age. This is sin. This is sin. And he talks about there's a period of time, and there was a period of time, in which what called itself Christianity or Christendom became a very sinful thing. And uh, we refer to that period of time as the Dark Ages, and they were very dark. But the reason I'm pointing this out is because Yeshua is citing something else from the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis 18.6. It says, Angel, Abraham receives some angelic messengers to visit, uh, to pay him a call, they visit him. And it says, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. These are the only two places where three seahs of flour are mentioned. So when Yeshua mentions this in Matthew 13, there's a little shadow referring back to something of the Torah, where Abraham tells his wife, Sarah, to prepare three measures of flour. But these are unleavened. What's the connection here? We are called the bride of Messiah. The question is, are you like Sarah in Genesis 18? Or are you like the woman in Matthew 13? This woman, Sarah, she's making bread for guests. This woman over here, she's making bread for guests. But the food that you're giving to others, is it pure? Is it untainted? Or is there something hidden inside that is sinful? Something that's damaging? We have to be very careful. Because you know you could have one person speak into another person's life and share a passage of Scripture, and it's wholesome and good, and it nourishes and feeds them. Yet another person can can quote that same passage of Scripture, and it comes like a dagger blade in their heart to cause pain. And I've been guilty of that. So I think, this person needs to know this passage of Scripture, and I'm just the person to do it. And I make it about me. And I might be sharing something that's true with them, but I'm doing it with a heart that's leavened, with a bad attitude, wanting to cause pain, wanting to bring correction, but just to also stick it to them. We need to be very careful that when we feed other people God's Word, it's untainted with our own, our own sin, our own pride and ego. So let's be like Sarah and not like this woman in Matthew 13. Let's continue. The next thing Paul does is to name six, six um, behaviors that are absolutely intolerable in the redeemed community. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter. So there's a previous letter he written to Corinth before this one. We don't have that letter. In fact, there are hints that there were two previous letters he had written. If that's the case, what we call 1 Corinthians should be 3 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians should be 4th. But we don't have these first, this first letter or first two letters. But he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this cosmos, of this world system, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, people don't claim to be believers. You can't help but associate with them. They're the ones who sell you things in the store, the people you work with at the office or the factory. They're the people who live next door to you. You can't avoid them. They're everywhere. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. 
If he calls himself a believer, calls himself a Christian, and he or she does these things, that's a whole different thing. But if they bear the name of brother, if he is guilty of, and there are six things he lists, sexual immorality, and there's that word pornos, this is the, the masculine form of the word, pornos, or greed, or as an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a thief, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the community whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 21, 21. Purge the evil person from among you. This is what it says. And all the men of this, if his city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. I want you to think about these six things. Over the years of Beth the Coon, as an elder, there have been times when there would be a, a problem person in the community, and we had to discuss this person, what we should do about them. The first thing we do is consult this list of these six things, and is this person guilty of practicing one of these six? Now, I'm saying that very carefully. Are they practicing one of these six? We're not talking about someone who falls. They fall into a, a, a sexually compromised position. They, they, immediately they're overcome with guilt and pain and regret. That it's like that's not their practice. It's something that happened and we need to help work to restore that brother to make things right. We're not talking about a person who sees uh, somebody else's car and thinks, oh man, I wish I had that car. We're talking about someone who's, who greed is the motivator. An idolater. A mocker is what that one mead, word means. They're in constant mockery of things that are righteous, of things that are good, of things that are spiritual. A drunkard. Not someone who got drunk, which is a sin, but someone where this is their natural state. Or a thief. If a person, we, and it sometimes takes a lot of prayer and a lot of uh, discussion to decide, is this person truly overcome by one of these six? If they are, we try to restore them. We make sure that they're aware, that we're, we're aware of what's going on, and they refuse to repent. At that point, we have only one decision to make, and that is to remove them from the community. Warn the community and tell them you're not even to eat with this person. That's a tough thing to do. It seems very unloving. But the motivation for this is always for one thing, that this person will come to repentance and come back to complete restoration of the community. But if their behavior is not costing them fellowship with the community, endorsement by the community, love and attention from the community, then why should they ever repent? Uh, there's always some soft-hearted people who want to continue to fellowship with this person. And it's like, I, I try to tell them, you're not helping them with this. By doing this, you're not helping them. You're getting in the way of the work that God wants to do in their life. They need to experience the pain of what they're doing. Don't interfere. But it's so hard for some people not to, to be soft-hearted when they need to stand strong. Now, if they're not guilty of one of these six, then they're not to be removed. We deal with them in a different way. Sometimes they're just a sick sheep, and we need to help them get whole, get strong. Sometimes they're just immature, and, uh, but we, we work around. We want to help this person. But these six are forms of leaven that, if tolerated in the community, will affect the entire community damaging community. And I know of, of communities been destroyed because of tolerating one person and letting their influence spread. We can't let that happen. All right? So thank God for the scriptures that give us clear steps in making decisions as elders as we minister to the community. I know a lot of believers, great people, wonderful people, trophies, and examples of God's grace 
who at one time in their lives were overcome by one or more of these six things. And there's, their lives are deeply scarred. And not only was great damage done to themselves, to their marriages, their families, but to other people as well. And yet today, God uses them as great lights. And since this is the, uh, the festival of lights that we're in, I wanted to share with you an excerpt from a book I just, uh, just finished this week. My nephew Daniel gave it to me about, uh, about a month ago. He said, Uncle Grant, you've got to read this book. And I'd seen it on the shelves in stores. It's called You Are Worth It. It's written by Kyle Carpenter. And, uh, and so I read it. It took a few weeks to read it. And just this week, in fact, it was two days ago, I came across this chapter near the end of the book called Don't Hide Your Scars. And I would probably do well to have someone else read this too instead of me because this impacted me so deeply that I, I knew I had to share it with you this week. Kyle Carpenter joined the Marines just shortly after high school and uh, was sent to Afghanistan. And he was just barely out of his teens when he was on a roof with uh, his buddy, they're doing overwatch, and a Taliban member threw a hand grenade up there on the roof. And, uh, and Kyle threw himself on top of it. He doesn't even remember doing it. After it happened, he didn't wake up until five weeks later. He lost his right eye. His right arm is almost completely blown off. It's a miracle they were able to save his arm. His jaw was blown off. It was just hanging by a thread over on one side. They had to rebuild his face. One side of his face is all titanium because the skull is gone there. Lost his teeth. They were all blown out. And the damage that was done to his body is incredible. He lived in the hospital for three years. Dozens of surgeries. At one point in the book he's talking about is like his 30th surgery. His life during that time was surgery, recovery, rehab. Surgery, recovery, rehab. Over and over and over again for years. And uh, Kyle is the youngest Congressional Medal of Honor recipient in American history. Only about 20 years old. And he was given the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's the star you see up here at the top. Kyle's a godly young man. Godly family. South Carolina. Raised in a very conservative home. Just a, the model home. And, uh, but he talks about the impact the scars have had. Because if you see him up close, he's got a lot of black spots where the, the shrapnel from the hand grenade and the, and the gunpowder just burned right into his skin. So he's got black flecks all over his face. He's very, very deeply scarred. So he writes, about how scars are so powerful. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but segments from it. It says, By the spring of 2012, I could leave the hospital grounds, which was fantastic, but I was still living at Walter Reed, and that was getting a little old. Which was why, when Carlos Toronzo gave me a call and said that he was at home on leave and wanted to see me if I felt up to it, I couldn't have agreed faster. Now, only, not only did I miss him and the rest of the boys, I was excited to catch up. It was also just a welcome break from hospital life. I was eager for anything that was different. I had no idea just how different an experience I was in for. I'd become close with Toronzo in Afghanistan. He came from one of the roughest neighborhoods in the D.C. area. 
And when I would sit post at night, he would come talk to me and tell me crazy stories from back home, including one in which he had almost been stabbed to death. He still had the scar on his neck. I couldn't imagine what his childhood had been like. And I know he couldn't imagine mine either, a series of small southern towns with a stable home and never a brush with the law. Those conversations were eye-opening for me and made me realize how my seemingly boring, uneventful life was actually pretty extraordinary for its lack of dysfunction, if nothing else. Taranzo would describe his scrapes with fellow gang members and encounters with the police, how he had joined the Marine Corps in part as an alternative to the gang life and had had to leave his friends behind in the process. Taranzo enlisted in the Marines in a way to avoid ending up dead, but also because he was a U.S. resident at the time and wanted to serve the country that allowed him and his family a path towards citizenship and a better life. It made me think more about the reasons I had enlisted, to be a part of something bigger than myself and to feel I had really lived. I was amazed at the different paths that had brought us to the same place. So he goes to the restaurant to meet Taranzo. He says, when I arrived, I was surprised to see he wasn't alone. He had brought a few of his buddies from his old life with him, buddies who were active gang members. When he introduced them, I learned that these were childhood friends, and among the few guys from his past, Taranzo felt he could hang around with safely. They were some of the toughest-looking dudes I had ever seen in my life, heavily tattooed, and it looked as if a dozen past fights were mapped out on their bodies and scars. They seemed like the sort to never acknowledge you unless you were in with them or you crossed them. I definitely didn't want to be or do either. I'm not going to lie. I was a little intimidated. But there I was, sitting in a British faux pub, chatting with some guys from a completely different world than I had ever known. A world so far removed from my small town upbringing, I could barely wrap my head around it. I'm not even sure how I introduced myself, because what do you say? Pleased to meet you, Mr. Gang Member, sir, doesn't exactly cut it. But the awkwardness lasted all of two seconds before one of them started shaking my hand and the other put his arm around me. They told me they had wanted to come and meet me because of what Taranzo had described to them about everything they, that went down during our deployment and my injury. You've been through some tough, hmm, for your brother, Vato, one guy said. So you're our brother forever, and we are always here for you. And just like that, the ice broke, and we were just four guys laughing and talking in a restaurant. They told me they respected everything I did and what I was going through, and that if they were ever in a position to protect someone, they hoped they could do the same thing for their brothers. That evening, I came to understand a little bit more about Taranzo and the influences that had shaped him. And I came to realize why he was such a good Marine. He had grown up surrounded by a code of toughness, loyalty, and community. The street was a little different from the military, but some of the principles were the same. And when those guys who had been through stuff I could never even imagine, recognized someone else who had lived through hell, they felt a connection. None of our stories are pretty, but we carried the marks from them on our bodies as reminders of what we had been through. It was all a little crazy. Gang members generally don't go around giving hugs to people. But listen to this. What I came to realize was that my scars somehow seemed to bridge the otherwise large gap between us. Scars, it turns out, are a universal language. Scars, it turns out, are a universal language. One of the most unexpected parts of the rebuilding process was the connection I forged with people who otherwise might have been invisible to me. I've had homeless people strike up conversations, parolees say hello, and guys who had been raised on the streets talking to me as if I were one of their own. They often can't relate to the stable, middle-class upbringing I've experienced any more than I can relate to the hard life they've had 
but we both understand pain and brokenness. We have a bond through our scars. Not long ago, I was walking in downtown Columbia, South Carolina, when I passed two homeless men talking on the street. I'd just come from a meeting and was dressed up, and one of the men said kindly, Looking sharp, brother. I thanked him as, I admit, I waited for the follow-up question of if I had any money. But as I continued walking, nothing else was said. I reached my car, but I couldn't shake him from my mind. Half of my brain was telling me to turn around and talk to him, and the other half was telling me just to forget about it and drive away. I stood there with the car door open, wrestling with myself over what I should do. It seemed silly to walk all the way back there, but I couldn't get in my car. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I thought to myself, what if this is the last time you ever see that kind man? I closed the door and walked back up the hill. The second man had left, but the one who had spoken to me was still there. I apologized to him that I did not have any cash, but I offered to take him to a nearby store for some snacks and supplies. He thanked me and shook my hand. His name was Kenny. His only request was a pack of cigarettes, though he told me he didn't smoke. I'd wanted to buy him food, so I asked him what he needed the cigarettes for if he didn't smoke. I'm thankful I was wearing glasses because his answer brought tears to my eyes. He explained to me that down at the mission, these things are gold, and I can sell a single cigarette for $2. After a little grocery shopping, we sat outside the college mart and talked for another half hour. He asked me about my scars, and I told him about Afghanistan. He showed me some of his scars. And shared the stories that went with them. Childhood accidents, old work injuries from when he was employed, inevitable marks that come from living on the streets. Kenny told me he enjoyed speaking with me because even though I was someone who had a different life from his, it was clear that I experienced extraordinary physical and mental pain. I might not have been sleeping under a bridge, but all it took was one look to know that I dealt with hardships that most people from my background had been fortunate enough not to have to face. I think and hope that made me more relatable to Kenny and that he felt he could talk with me openly and honestly. My scars were kind of credential that I proved I was somehow uh, someone who had been through the worst and still managed to survive. Then there was the greeter at my local Walmart, an elderly gentleman who always has a cheerful hello for everyone who comes through the door. One day as I was walking in, he spotted me, flashed his huge grin, then did finger pistols at me as he playfully asked, motorcycle wreck? I did finger pistols right back and replied, Taliban. I certainly wasn't planning on a heart-to-heart with the Walmart greeter that day, but that was what happened as we struck up a conversation about my injuries and recovery, and he told me about some of his most difficult times. It was a simple thing, but in a world where we can feel so disconnected from those around us, he and I had a genuine human moment. Maybe my perspective on things is a little skewed when I tell people not to hide their scars since I don't really have a choice in the matter. Some of my scars are going to show no matter what I wear. Maybe it is easier not to think about your scars if they are on a part of your body that you can easily cover. And maybe there are those who simply choose not to show their scars. I would never encourage anyone to share something they aren't comfortable sharing, but there are some scars that are so obvious, so apparent, that it is impossible to hide or ignore them. Instead of being ashamed of them, I think there is power in embracing these stories that leave their marks on our bodies and our souls. I could choose to hide some of my scars. I could wear long sleeves over the injuries on my arms or long pants to cover my legs. But there's no way to hide the marks on my face. My philosophy on scars took an unexpected turn as I began to make more public appearances and I soon learned that it wasn't always my physical scars that created intense and sometimes surprising bonds. After attending the Commandant's Marine Corps birthday ball with a crowd of several thousand people, 
I was in the middle of a meet, meet and greet, when one Marine, whose uniform showed he was a, of a much higher rank than me, approached me and started to get choked up. I could tell there was something he wanted to say, so I turned with him so that our backs were to the receiving line of the cameras and we could speak a little more privately. He thanked me for sharing my story and then confessed I was the reason he had not killed himself. If I had survived and fought through all I had endured, he knew he could keep fighting his emotional scars too. I hardly knew what to say to that, standing there in the middle of a huge crowd with a few hundred more hands to shake. Finally, I just looked him in the eye and said, promise me I'll see you next year. He smiled a little and said, yes, I will see you next year. I gave him a hug. Then he was gone back into the crowd. And I'm almost done. The thing about scars is that they bear witness to something in our past. They are a reminder of an incident, an injury, an accident, or a mishap. Something that went wrong. But they are also a reminder of something that went right. The body healed itself. It created new tissue around the injury in order to protect it and close it. That can only happen if you are alive. Scars mark you as a survivor. And given enough time, most scars start to fade. Your body has the ability to preserve, protect, and persist. There's a difference between a wound and a scar. A wound is still fresh. It runs the risk of infection if it's not tended to properly. It can still cause pain. It may need to remain covered until it is healed sufficiently to be exposed. But the time will come to remove the bandage and let sunlight and air do their healing work too. Only you will know when that time is. But when it comes, I hope you are not afraid or ashamed or embarrassed. Your scars may not be pleasant to look at, what they represent is a beautiful resilience and a toughness that no one can ever question or take from you. Wear your scars proudly. Wear them for yourself to honor what you've been through. And wear them for others to connect with them and inspire them to keep on fighting. Scars are evidence that injuries can heal and pain can fade. Your scars can give someone the reassurance that you are not alone and give others the hope that someday their wounds become nothing but scars too. I want us to go back to this picture. That one right there. Tell me about the menorah. Is the menorah beautiful? Or is it all bent up, scraped, bent, dented? Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference at all. And in our lives, we need to quit focusing on that. Because in the dark days in which we live, that is what matters. In our prayer time, we were talking about the word perfection, which in Hebrew is the word shalom. And in the West, we tend to think that perfection means something that's flawless. It's not what it means in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word perfection, shalom, means complete. And to make you complete often requires a lot of wounds and scar tissue. So your body may not be flawless, but perfect in God's eyes. And your life may not be flawless. In fact, I can guarantee you it's not. Because we've been wounded by friends, maybe parents, spouses, siblings, children. Wounds take all kinds of forms, physical ones and spiritual ones, emotional ones. 
But that doesn't make us imperfect in God's eyes. Even Yeshua has wounds and scars. He's perfect. Right? So I think the burden of my life now is I want to be light. The menorah serves a purpose, but it's just to support the fire. And if the fire's shining, who gives a rip what the menorah looks like? But if there's no fire, who gives a rip what the menorah looks like? In dark days, this is what matters right here. Right? I'm glad that's over. I tell you, that ripped me up the first time I read it, and the second time I read it, and the third, and this time. But uh, I, I think it speaks to something very visceral in each one of us. Because the enemy comes along and tells us, oh, you're too beat up and too scarred and too, too broken to be used. And God says, nope, I think you're just about right. Let's light the fire. So let's be wise virgins who have oil in our lamps. And as the night falls, people take notice. And we're ready to greet our Messiah when he comes. All right? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. And I thank you for this young man, Kyle Carpenter, who's spoken deeply into my life because of his brokenness and his wounds. And Lord, as he looks back on his life, it's obvious that you brought him into this world in the way and at the time that you did so he would be on a roof in Afghanistan on that particular day in that moment when a grenade, this thing meant for destruction and death, fell close to him. And then he went through hell for years. So that you could use him as light. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to quit focusing. Help us to quit focusing on the pain we've experienced and the wounds and the scars we have and instead realize that these are bridges that allow us to connect to other bruised and broken people. Forgive us for the times we hide our scars as if you are embarrassed of them. But grant us the humility And help us to break the ego. Not that we flaunt our scars, but Lord, we let them tell our story. For each of us is a story in the process of being written. And we're a story that you are reading to the lives of others. So help us to open up. Be the people you want us to be. Let us not hide our scars and our lights under a bushel. But allow our flaws to make us perfect, to make us complete. So again, I pray, make us the people you want us to be. And during this festival of lights, may we we be great lights to the world around us. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.